Welcome to Joyful Marketing. I'm Simone Soul, and I teach you how to get your life coaching practice fully booked without having to pay for ads, buy Instagram followers, or complicated sales funnels. It's not rocket science, and you can do it too. Listen on to find out how. Hey friends, today I'm bringing on the show for the second time my dear friend and colleague Karen Hawkwood, aka KJ Sassy Pants, which is what so many of us call her. Because the first time I brought her on the show, the response was effing wild. I had people tell me that they cried, had their brains broken, had their entire lives changed. Like literally, these are the, some of the things that people said by some of the things that Karen said on that episode. So if you haven't caught episode, it was 94 titled The Path of Mastery with Karen Hawkwood. Be sure to do so before or after you listen to this episode. Karen doesn't call herself a quote unquote coach anymore. She doesn't really call herself anything. <laughs> the closest thing might be something like a Baba Yaga like practitioner that works with humans in strange ways. <laughs> and we got together to chat again without an agenda, without a theme or a five point plan. And we ended up talking about what's on both of our minds as both of us find that our practices and businesses are in a kind of transitional sort of liminal period where we, we both find ourselves leaning into some uncomfortable questions about what needs to fall away and what wants to come into new being. We talk about the dangers of bypassing the physicality of the human experience. We talk about the inevitability of decay and loss and the complicated relationship that we modern humans have with those things. We talk about sovereignty and how it must coexist with communality. We talk about ways to reimagine the way we go after our pursuits in our daily lives and our businesses and our money, etc., outside of the injurious dynamics that come from the legacy of exploitative and an extractive colonialism. So <laughs> if you're ready for this experience, strap yourselves in. This is going to be a juicy one. Presenting my conversation with Karen Hawkwood. We jump in sort of mid-conversation, but just swim along with us. So, yeah, you know, I'm finding that my work, not even my work in a formal sense, I don't know the shape of it yet, but the ground of what's alive in me is starting to take some not completely unexpected directions, but I didn't think it was going to be now. <laughs> I thought it would be down the road a little bit longer. And I'm in one of those places where I don't know exactly what that means yet in terms of the form and shape of what I do with people. And I'm Can you, to Do you mind being a little it. bit more specific no. about? Go ahead. No, not at all. No, yeah. what's really calling to me at the moment or, or starting to come more alive is what I would call my magical work, my magical and spiritual work. And stepping somehow more into that very, very ancient role that has really some tricky, it's some tricky territory in modern life because I am of European descent largely. But all cultures have had people who stand at the doorway and as the doorway 
between the mundane human world and that which is beyond. And there are people who do that in ways that we might call more of a, a priestly function. And then there are those that are more what I would consider, and it's on a spectrum, they're not necessarily opposed to each other, but it's a more pragmatic purpose. How do I help people in the world live better through the skills that I have? And that's where I'm headed. I just don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I know that's where I'm headed. And it's not that my astrological work and the archetypal work and and sort of deep identity work is incompatible with that. It's not. But it's a matter of how do I expand or adapt that to incorporate this new way of being in service to people. I don't know yet. Cool. I just want all the updates. (laughs) You will have all the updates. I promise that you will. And one of the things that really shapes that that's very interesting is is considering the question of how does that intersect with structures of business? When you're in conversation with that which is beyond how whatever that is, you can't necessarily put that on the clock (laughs) as easily. To say the least. You know, sometimes the others are like, Okay, you know, two and a half minutes, we're good. We've said everything we need to say. Other times it's like been three hours and you're okay. We might have to define the others for listeners. (laughs) This is capital O others, which is my my term for what some people call guides or allies. Or for me, I have a deep relationship with my ancestors. And I do that in a very particular way. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of basically spiritual allies, however you think of them, KJ uses the term others with a capital O. Yeah. My non-human people. Yeah. Non-human spirit people that are my team, you know, my advisory board. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, So yeah, I appreciate it. I'm I'm not trying to, you know, use. No, 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 that's good. I think this episode might just be titled like the inconvenience of the others stepping in, (laughs) stepping in at unexpected times. (laughs) Hello. Or sometimes what they want of you or what they're saying, no, it's time. Like they have a perspective that I don't have. It, I don't defer to them either in a way of, oh, I'm just a crawling worm. I, you know, this is where I get. And of course, you and I have laughed about this, about my, my annoying specificity around terminology. But because I'm a Jungian, I come from a Jungian background. The common, the more sort of vernacular use of the term ego is hard for me now. Because we tend to refer to it as everything that's sort of unhelpful and undesired in our nature. Sure. And yeah. I'm more used to thinking of it as the thing that allows us to participate in consensus reality in some kind of effective way. In any case, I don't, I think the, the healthiest relationships in general are from a place of sovereignty and also communality. And I find that sovereignty and communality really create a kind of fullness that works very well. When we're sovereign without being communal, we're, we're tyrant. You, and, I, I'm sorry. The, the way I express it, you can tell me if doesn't, this doesn't sound like the same thing, but yeah. the way that I have expressed a similar idea, I think, to my clients is to, is to say you want like full sovereignty and full interdependence. Yes. Right. Because I think, you know, how our, our culture can be so toxic around 
like, you know, whenever we talk about ideas, even approaching sovereignty, it's like, it's all just you, you know, put your, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, solve all your own problems, right? right? Rugged individualism. Yeah. Autonomy, personal power, personal agency, which of course is so important, but I think it's important and, and, and purposeful to the extent that it allows you to fully engage in, in, in the communality and in the community in which in which we reside socially and and spiritually and i don't think we humans were ever ever meant to do basically anything alone right just the fabric of how we're made just like literally anthropologically biologically biologically we're a pack descended people they're the most interdependent species on the planet that we know of Yes. And we, we thrive as humans. We thrive best. I think when we are being communal, when we are being interdependent and I think healthy models of what, well, you know, I put the word healthy in quotes because whatever that means, but like just (laughs) whatever healthy quote models of kind of what it, what it looks like for, for full sovereignty and and full interdependence, as I call it, can intersect and one strengthens the other, right? Like when you are full of your own power, I think it makes you puts you in the best position to be of service to others and to and to lean on others. We've all had times when we just felt like like energetically hungry ghosts and we didn't oh, yeah. know how to fill ourselves. So we lean on others, expect them to fill us up, and that doesn't really work, right? And so we we are we're made to lean on others and we can we can sort of make the best of of the potential that exists in these interactions with others when we can bring our, our our own fullness into it. So anyway, that's that's just me being like, yes, I think I we're talking about the same I thing. I agree completely. You're feeding yeah. it back to me in your words. It's it's a it's exactly the same thing because what I would say is what I see is that when we come into the fullness of our sovereignty from a clean er place, and I'm simply saying that because we're all human right? The idea that anyone's hundred percent clean, if you're a living human right. being, probably not quite. Right. But when we are in an awareness of our own power, our own magnificence, our own gifts from a cleaner place, we want to give it back. Mm-hmm. We want to give it back. It's just this very sweet, simple, instinctive thing of wanting to put that back into the communal pool. Yeah. And I think that is part of our biological imperative too. When we come into a sense of power that is accompanied by the insecurity, the hungry ghost, the uncertainty of our worth, it's more, 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 more. It's never enough. And we don't have, we're not in that place where we actually feel like we have what we need and therefore we want to do something with the surplus, you know, with the rest of, of who we are. And so, but also I loved the point that you made about we lean on each other from a hungry ghost place too, rather than from a firmly sovereign place. And then we become, which I say with all the compassion in the world, because we've created so many desperately injured people in the world. We inherited injuring dynamics from from forever. (laughs) From forever, yeah. From forever, basically, as far as I can tell. Not a trauma expert, but it seems like it just sort of goes back and back and back. And then we're not, you know, that's what feels to me like a state of collapse. And so there's there's tyranny and there's kind of, I am the sole power. I am the captain of my destiny. And then there's, I'm worthless and helpless and I, I'm just in a collapsed state. And yeah. the in-between is what 
what seems to work best and certainly what I strive for. But one of the things that's been different for me as this, you know, I, I made a post to, to Facebook a little, just, I don't know, a couple months ago that came out of a conversation with a client where I said, it's, it's odd to me to use the term spiritual practice because spiritual practice for me is bones and blood and dirt. And that's very physical. It's very physical. It's very embodied and it's very, it feels very ancient to me. Love it. And it has as much death in it as, as it does life. You know, it has decay as, as the basis for generativity. I've been thinking so much about how what so many people call spiritual practice or spiritual whatever is kind of a flight from the body and a flight from the human condition. And my feeling for a long time without casting any aspersions on anyone. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I talk a lot about, uh, you know, and I've started to try and find, and this isn't my language. I think people have talked about this for a long time, but the different energetic qualities of what I call up and out, which is not bypassing. Bypassing is that used for shadow purposes. Up and out as a human orientation has its value. It's needed, desperately needed. What are you referring to when you say up and out? Like, so yeah. So so let's hold up and out and then down and in as a sort of a yin yang, right? Sort of a set of polarities that makes up a whole. Sure. Up and out in this case is being able to do kind of two things to rise up in a sense of not being above, but seeing a wider through a wider lens. Yeah. Sure. Just the dirt that's right here in front of my face. Mm hmm. And from that perspective, we can see things from an angle that's about more than just us and more even than our immediate family or immediate community or our little village of people. It's kind of like looking at the whole of humanity and archetypally and mythologically, I often relate this to the story of Prometheus and what I talk about as the Promethean impulse to see potential and to see potential in group way, in a large group way, that could be for the benefit, for the advancement of the people. I feel like there's a Greek word for this. I just don't know what I'm it is. I'm sure there is. And I totally <laughs> don't, except for Promethean. I mean, that's kind of right, right. Something pathos, it. eros, something like right, right. <laughs> hope and, and, and future imagining. And, uh, you know, this is the archetype that I call the visionary. Now, a lot of people, when they hear visionary, they think more of what I think of as a mystic vision or a personal mm. vision. But mm. Prometheus had a vision, a clear, articulated, comprehensive understanding of what all of humanity could become if they had fire. He could see it. And what bothered him the most about the state of humans at the time is that they basically lived like animals. And he knew they could be more. Now, we could have a long, juicy conversation about whether it's so bad to be an animal, but, but we're, we're animals and we're not. And so Prometheus really saw that spark of possibility in the whole of the human species at the time, that they were sort of living and mating and fighting and dying, and that was kind of all there was. And he knew that they could create out of their imaginations, that they could bring forth feats of science, of philosophy, of architecture. These were the things that mattered to Prometheus. Create art, you know? And he wanted that potential to be lived rather than latent. 
in the human species. And it was the up and out perspective that allowed him to see that. Mm. When up and out gets separated, when, it, when the kite string gets cut, we're bypassing. Then we, we have lost all connection to embodiment, to the cyclical nature of death and birth. The so how, what might that look like? Just to give people a um, Look around the world. <laughs> not to be flipped Ouch. about it, but I'm like, switch on social media, look out any window. I mean, not everywhere, everywhere in the world, but in any real Western or Westernized culture. And part of the hallmark is that hungry ghost quality of never enough. Yeah. Never enoughness. Because when we have up and out balanced by down and in, what up and out does for us that down and in can't do is it draws us forward. Down and in by itself just sort of goes around in a little tiny circle forever. It just does the things it's always done. There's no change. There's only repetition. And up and out asks the question, is there more? Is there something new and different? Can we, can we grow? Can we change? I think that the desire to grow and change really arises in a clean way from that up and out part of us. But when we're only ever sort of trying to be somewhere other than where we are, well, we know what that looks like. That's the world we're living in. Tell me more about down and in. Down and Cause... in is the part that understands death and loss and not doing yeah, we don't know about that. We don't no, like we that. <laughs> we do not. It is so true. And I think that's, I mean, I think I have an inclination towards down and in, towards what I call, you know, bones and blood and dirt by nature. I think it's, it's kind of the way I'm made. But I also think I'm responding to the imbalance in the world that we're in yeah. and desperately feeling the, the, the pain of the absence of that. Mm. And you and I as practitioners, we both see this in people all the fucking time that there, it is not okay to not do. It's not okay to not be okay. That too. Decay, yeah. decay. Where in this modern life is decay anything but an embarrassment, a source of shame and a mess to be cleaned up as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Do we revel in decay? Yeah. Not anywhere that I know of. Right. You know, which is like, again, to, to just think about those those choices, I would say that my course in my life would probably be a lot more comfortable and probably even a lot more remunerative from that set of priorities if I didn't talk about decay quite so much. And instead, it's what I'm becoming more and more fascinated with. You know, I said to a, a colleague who's also becoming a friend that I'm just feeling more and more hungry for more Baba Yaga in my life. Mm -hmm. I just feel the chicken feet. And it's become chicken feet has become my shorthand. And I'm starting to evaluate like every day of my life, how much chicken feet did I, did I access today? And that's a quality in us that can revel in decay. Mm. Are, you, are you using really the word chicken feet like as a shorthand for Baba Yaga energy? Yeah, because okay. you know her house, Baba's hut, is on. I didn't know that. Feet. Oh, well, there okay. you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is one of the things that's quite famous about the Baba Yaga myths is that she lives in a house that is 
placed on that that is attached to this giant pair of chicken feet. They're like six feet tall. Mm. And the house walks around and it scratches in the dirt <laughs> like mm. chickens do. And sometimes it runs on the giant feet through the forest. And and so it's one of the ways that she keeps people out of her house because there's no <laughs> steps. Um, she, Baba can get the house to, to squat down mm. on its legs so that she can get up to the door. Mm. But um, a lot of the, the heroes and adventurers and whatnot that are trying to get into Baba's house to steal her secrets can't even get past the chicken feet. Love it. She's out there just laughing her ass off in the forest at them. So that's why chicken feet. Yeah. That's why that's the the shorthand for me. Also, chicken feet are weird. Yeah. They're a little gnarly looking. They're gnarly looking. And chickens are dinosaurs. Yeah. I was literally just going to say, yeah. Right. So there's a historic quality to them that I think appeals to me. But yeah, we... You know, if nature, and of course, again, without going on a rant about the condition of the planet, if nature tried to live even for, I think, a single day, the way that most of us modern humans expect ourselves to live, it would be the end of life. Yeah. Because there would be no rest. Yeah. There would be no not doing. There would be no night. There would be no winter. There would be no death. And there would be no decay, which means there would be no rich soil from which anything new could grow. And yet the terror of claiming that in an ordinary human being's life in this world, in this world that we've created and that we're now trying to figure out how to live in, it's, it's hard to overstate the, the terror that my clients feel and I still grapple with too, of choosing not, choosing stillness, choosing decay, choosing to really not just tolerate endings, but to to turn all the way into them, Mm. you know, to savor them in some particular way. And I'm noticing as I'm speaking about this, how much that sounds wrong to savor endings. That sounds almost either morbid or sadistic. Yeah. Because that's the framework we're working with. Right. So, and, you know, we, we also live in a culture that is, is constantly talking about, you know, what are some common phrases? Like, don't leave any money on the table. <laughs> don't miss any opportunities. Oh my gosh. Don't, yeah. You know, yeah. like what else could you be? And it's, that's up and out, just in a frenzy. I think just mo- modern culture just sets us up to just, be in madness all the time because try as we might with all of our best intelligence and technology, but all the things that we try desperately to turn away from and to avoid and to shove under the rug and to evolve out of, they're never going to stop following us. Like death, decay, loss, their thickness, you know, just everything. Yeah, it's it's like it's like, hey, 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 I'm still here. Hey, I'm still here. And so the fact that it's never going to stop following us, never gonna stop haunting us because it's a part of nature and we are part of nature. If if we try to do away, if we can't handle them, then that means that all of our lives become about avoidance. That's it. And flight away from, which I think characterizes like most of modern life. <laughs> yep. About 95%. Like, why probably. do we feel so miserable and alienated? I don't understand. <laughs> right. 
we must try harder. We must go faster. Surely that will more work. money. More yeah. money. Produce do more, more. Do more. Yeah. Produce more. Yeah. Eat more. Do you know? Fight more. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, when we're only in down and in, we are kind of only animals. Yeah. When we're only in up and out, we are partial humans at best. Yeah. Yeah. It's the it's the and I'm so especially because of that spiritual practice, which is just such a weird word for it, but my my forays and my learning into bones and blood and dirt, it's all about relationship. And that's a lot of what we've lost is this idea of being in relationship, which is a balanced state, but not stasis. Yeah. It's a it's it's a balance that is an experience of being in motion but there's a completeness to it. There's a reciprocity to it. There's this kind of wholeness to it. And so for me, like, and this is one of the things too, it's, it's kind of an odd thing to say in a way, but it's also something that seems so obvious to me now is that we talk a lot about the, the problems that we have through not being in relationship to nature and to the natural world. But when we say that, most of the time what we're talking about is the physical dimension of nature. And the other big sort of gaping place of that, that's, that's just something that's there and we don't see it and we don't realize that we don't see it is being in relationship with that which is beyond the material world. And so we, we, are, we need to reestablish relationships within the physical human material dimension of things. But then there's this whole other set of relationships with that which is beyond whatever this is that we really don't feel complete without most of us. I won't say that's true for everyone because I don't think anything is true for everyone. But that, that is the set of relationships we were in, in whatever way, wherever in the world we were doing it, that we were for a long, long, long time. Yeah. So there's a, a dis-ease, a, a, a disruption around the absence of those relationships. And we've, we've done a lot of, I mean, again, between your knowledge of history and socio-geopolitical, you know, realities and my weird quirky collection of information about things like the Middle Ages, I'm sure we could go a lot into that and we won't, but there's a lot of ways that we've tried to address that and where it seems to fall down, again, sort of looping back around in some odd ways here, is the communality part. For a lot of people, spiritual looking looking for or being in that whatever that is that's beyond has been a quite a solitary thing. And when people have tried to gather in spiritual communities, it goes about as well as most human communities do, because being <laughs> human in community is a very, very difficult thing to do. You know, and then all of the distortions of kind of modern late stage capitalism and all of that get involved and you know, we just keep stubbing ourselves on that question, but I don't think that means we should stop asking. Yeah. Because relationship, being in right relationship on all these levels seems like kind of the aspirational thing to me. Tell me more. I, I was literally just wondering to myself, like, how would I define, like, what is right relationship? Right. Like, I feel like I oh instinctively boy. have a sense. You love to ask the simple question. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> Something we have in common. Just give me the cliff notes version. But I, I think about, cause I was like, I was thinking, how would I present this to my clients? How would I talk about what right relationship is? And 
I think that it might be language that we share in some of, I don't know, like what if there's a, there's a part of the universe of the internet that talks about this. And then I am wondering how you would describe it. I would say I'm not sure that it's possible to really understand when you don't come from, which I do not come from. So I'm acknowledging that I'm not sure I really have the right, you know, not the, the deep, true understanding of it. When you come not from an intact culture, mm-hmm. because I think participating in an intact culture is part of what establishes what right relationship feels like, looks like, and how it works in practice. Because one of the, I think, and I say this acknowledging that I do not come from an intact culture, so I might be talking out my my behind here. But I think part of the, if we were going to say, what's a hallmark of being in right relationship, it's a sense of, of flow with yourself, with your closest relationships, with your community, and with the others, with that other world, whatever that is that's beyond us, all at the same time. And mm-hmm. I think most of us just are, I mean, that just blows our, our brains to conceive of that. And part of what we're recognizing now in the modern world, I say that because I think indigenous cultures, in, in all their different ways, I'm, not, I'm trying to be really clear that I'm not just lumping them all together, but a lot of different ways from a lot of different peoples native to particular parts of the world. We've been hearing this message for a long time now, which is around what we now call trauma. And in the modern world, we're just beginning to get the tiniest glimpse of of what's really going on there. And so what we're, one of the consequences of that is we're realizing a lot of our patterns of relationship are actually patterns of trauma. Mm-hmm. whether it's interpersonal relationship or relationship with the natural world or communality, you know, such as whatever would fall under that rubric. We're relating from injury. Yeah. And I don't think when you're really relating from injury, you're in right relationship. And I say that not as a condemnation because I think that's been as true of me as anyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just that I'm realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. So part of being in right relationship is beginning to, see where those relationship patterns have been sourced in injury Mm. rather than wholeness, rather Mm. than a kind of clean flow, and then figuring out how to repair that. And it doesn't mean there won't be scars. I mean, I don't think anyone who's really working in that kind of field of repair, repair of of harm, repair of trauma, even begins to pretend that we're just supposed to like make it like it never happened. Figuring out how to not be moving through life with all these gaping wounds that causes causes this constant flinching and pressing and you know it's all it's like you said earlier everything becomes about the protecting or or being against something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been thinking and teaching and coaching so much on the ideas of the way we sort of by default conduct you know, business out of injury, like out of, yeah. out of wounded dynamics. Right. And I think it is so, it's so 
pervasive. It is just in the air and it's so normalized that we don't even see it. And I have to confess, I didn't see it for the longest time, right? Where just the quest to something that sounds as innocuous as like to be really good at what you do and to achieve excellence in your domain and to be successful and to, you know, achieve this and accomplish that, which all that sounds so like admirable and good and positive, where so much of that, the the pursuit of that comes from (laughs) what we're going to call the hungry ghost syndrome is like, am I going to feel enough then? Am I going to feel worthy then? Am I going to be safe then? Right? Yep. And again, I think both Katie and I, we're, we're not talking about, we're not saying this in any kind of, you know, condemning, you know, judgmental way, because like, I'll say this was true of me. This wasn't is true of me as anyone, because I am a product of this culture as well. And I have the same wounding as everybody fucking else. Right. And, but when I began to really see it, it really kind of, it's like, I had to, like, everything had to come to a screeching halt so I could reassess. Right. Like, where am I saying, oh, I'm, I'm in being in service. I'm here to help you. I'm here to do whatever for you, but actually really, I, I want you to mend my, my injury. (laughs) Like I, I, this is a never ending pursuit to, to have you fill a hole in myself. That is, that was never your job to, to fill and that you are incapable of filling because it's not yours. It's fine. You can't fill it anyway, no matter how hard either of us works at that. Yeah. And Another aspect of this that I've been thinking and teaching a lot about is how much of this, of, of these injuring dynamics um, come from, come from colonialism, right? Absolutely. And that, and we are all, all products and descendants of colonial legacies. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what culture you come from, right? I don't even care if you are not even in the Western world at all. And I'm not in the physically, right? right. Geographically, I'm not in the Western world. And we it's just like it just runs really really deep right yeah and even within non-western societies and it's it's dynamics of of control and manipulation and exploitation and extraction yeah right and these are all of which are phenomena that arise from injury like it's the violence that rises from injury and that perpetuates more of the injury right and one of the ways that like i've really noticed my own perspective changing and I'm starting to see the things I didn't see in tiny ways. It's a lifetime's work. I'm halfway through my, my lived span if I'm lucky, but the idea of having the idea of possession is one that is just starting to, to fluff off for me. Mm-hmm. Even something as seemingly trivial as noticing that when my teacher talks about, for instance, when he talks about stone people, and they are people, you know, that's the language that I use now too. So this is a new stone person that came into my care is, and that's how he says it. He doesn't say my Brandberg quartz crystal. It doesn't belong to me any more than you belong to me. This is a person who is now in my care. And it is a fundamentally different relationship with everything when we don't think about having we don't think about owning 
because my sense is and my experience of myself is that is both a reflection of and a perpetuator of not being in relationship. Right. It's it's, it's dominion over. It's, you know, control over. Yeah. Yeah. And we can only be in dominion over things that are lesser. Exactly. And that means they are things and not people. Yeah. The the word the word people it that always like it does a weird thing in my brain because I always anthropomorphize um, the word person and people and so the way I translate when you say that in my own head is like beings or entities. Um, I mean we're talking about the same thing, but it's really fascinating because as you know, because you're my friend, my my husband was born and raised in Korea and he never never been to the Western world, never never set foot in the Western world, and he will and we have we Koreans have sort of native ways of acknowledging, you know, that everything is alive and in relationship with us. So I'll say things like, wait, we live in an apartment now that we're moving out of because it's too small for the two of us and a baby. And I'll say it just offhand, just sit and say, oh, our apartment is so small. I can't wait to move to the next place. You know, just complaining about shit. And then he'll say, and he wouldn't be joking a hundred percent earnestly. He'll say, you know, the house can hear you. I love that. And he, I know he's such a deeply pragmatic human, but he that's is. not I- antithetical to pragmatism. Right. I mean, KJ knows he's a lawyer. He's a super logical person. And yep. and he just has this sense and he's not joking about it. He's not being whatever. Because this, this, it's a Korean thing that he was st- just raised to understand that your living space is a living thing. Yeah. And, and so we don't want to offend this apartment that has housed us and been good to us. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, sorry. Absolutely. <laughs> that's that's a beautiful example, Simone. That's a yeah. beautiful example. How would we change our relationship with our homes, our, our dwelling places, if, they, if we really knew and understood, not believed, perceived mm. that mm. they are as alive as we are? Yeah, yeah. How would we feel about our car if we didn't think of it as mine? Mm. If we didn't think of it, because ownership confers power. It's a dominant relationship. It is a power structure that confers all power to the owner. If I own something, a car, a house, whatever, it can also be the object of owning becomes something that I can also discard That's for it. my convenience. You either own it or you discard it or you do something to it. Or and you it's convert an- it to something else that's more valuable to you. It's a commodity. Right. Exactly. It's a subject-object relationship as opposed to subject-subject relationship. And sorry, I just have to like get in here with like with my spiel about the the part where we transfer these dynamics to the way we relate to our clients and to our audiences where our clients exist so that we can do things to them or the the other way, our client coach relationship exists so that my clients can give can give me the money and the validation so that I can feel whatever. And And then we put ourselves in the object position where we're not going to feel complete until they affirm for us that we're we're doing it right that we're being you know good at our job successful etc right and Hallelujah. so so it's always this this you're either in the d- dominion position or the the subject position and we're so uncomfortable stepping out of that entire frame right and yes. where like what would you I mean, and this, these questions blew my mind when I first started contemplating them. It's like, what would a, a client, a coach relationship, what would a, a customer 
business relationship look like without these dynamics of, of dominion and control? And what if, if two parties are showing up as sovereigns? And when I first began to pose these questions to my clients, and, and of course, the same thing that happened to me, it's like, we can't, it's like difficult to even conceive of like a working relationship that isn't based on dynamics of control. And, 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 and right. Cause we've been right. steeped in it. Like you said, it's we've been steeped in it. Known. Wait, hold on. I'm supposed to run a business. I'm supposed to get you to give me money. I'm supposed to. And I need that money. I, I need that money. It. And you need be. this transformation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. I know what you need. Yes. And I can give it to you and you need to do this. And I need this from you. And so, and it's like, wait, how do we conduct commerce? How do we have these exchanges of energy, money, whatever it is, when we both come as already whole? What? Like, I know. It just, literally breaks people's brains and I'm still picking up the pieces of my own bro- broken brain. Right. I think, and I think if we're not breaking our brains fairly regularly, yeah, we're really maybe letting ourselves get a tad too comfortable. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think we have to be shattering our worldview constantly for sure, but if we, if we get too sure that we know how it is and how it works, we might not be kind of finding our edges enough. So yeah. I'm picking up the broken pieces of my own brain on a fairly regular basis. And a lot of it is the same thing. So like as an example, in terms of client dynamics for me, one of the things that I just found my way to this instinctively very early as a coach, back when I think coaching was really some more an accurate description of what I do. I don't know what it is I do now in a, in a conventional descriptor anymore, but it's still people. It's still people, right? It's still a practitioner relationship. But I trust my clients, and that includes trusting them to know whether working with me right now or for what period of time or intensity or whatever, is that is 100% not my business because I trust them. And just like I would trust you, and I would never pressure you or lean on you or even unconsciously, even with really good motives, assume that I knew something about you that you didn't know, I just would never do that. And so you, so can, you can deliver me and save me <laughs> to a better right. place. Yeah. It's like, no, you really need to go hiking with me. I know you need that. You really need and You helps. will be better off. <laughs> you, you will feel so much better for it. You will love it. You will enjoy it. Let me help give you all the information that will help you make the decision to go hiking with me. Not the right decision for you, the decision that I believe is right for you. Let me give you everything you would need to come to the conclusion that I know you should come to. And it just was like, that's not trust. That's it's not, not a love. Of trust. It's not love. It's, and it's definitely not a subject to subject relationship. It's definitely not service either. Hello. Well, you're serving you know? something, but you're not serving the other person. It's covert <laughs> dominion. If we're really yeah. going to be honest with ourselves about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of self, self-delusional dominion. We pretend we're not being in dominion. We pretend we're in service to our clients by trying we to pretend we're in reciprocity, but absolutely not. But any, not. Any of these things. Yeah. We're not. So, and I also have had absolutely had my share, I think sometimes to, to people's surprise that a client will come to talk to me about working with me. And it's really clear to me that I'm not their person. And it feel, I, I, I look at it more like that than a, that they're not my person. But of course, that's also true. 
Yeah. And I want them to find their person. I want them to have the most amazing experience that they can have to really get the, the nourishment, the support that they need. And if it's really clear to me that I'm not that, I will do my best to point them to who will get them that. Yeah. And I've had people be really openly surprised by that. And to me, it's like, but I care about you. You seem like a good human. Why wouldn't I want you to have that? Why yeah. would I assume that that has to be me or I need to be clutchy about you? Right, right. And clutch you, try and clutch you into my world. With your How chicken feet. Great, <laughs> great. Right. I mean, because right. especially if they don't, and this is the other thing, and I will say this over and over, the more we really show up in the world as who we are, the more an act of love that is to our people. 100%. Amen and amen forever. Yep. Amen and amen forever. And you and I will keep for as long as we're tossing things back and forth. We'll toss that one back and forth because I just don't think it can get said enough because this whole mindset, you know, not quite using it the way that you all use it, but kind of, this is swimming upstream culturally. What we're talking about here is really moving upstream against the cultural flow. And because the pressure of the cultural flow is constant, when we are moving upstream, it's got to be constant too. Mm-hmm. Not particularly fair, pisses me off. I think about this a lot when it comes to things like fat phobia and ableism and a lot of the things that I both experience and I'm on the receiving end of and that I have internalized and that I have learned to perpetuate and I'm trying to unlearn those things. It's a constant reconfirmation in myself that the cultural message is wrong. But if I if I relax that for too long, it's going to seep back in. Yeah. That's just what it does. So yeah. I don't think we can say that too often. Really. Yeah. I, <laughs> I know we can go for five more hours. <laughs> Forever. 50 more hours. We got to cut this conversation somewhere. All right. Where are we going to wrap it up? I don't know. I feel like, I'm like, how do we wrap up where we are? I know it's impossible. It's not like we went from like outline A to outline B. <laughs> no, we did not have a five bullet point trajectory here. Right. And you know what I love so much about that is that sometimes often in life, we, we have to tolerate incomplete moments. Mm-hmm. You know, remember when I talked last time about how that quote from Martin Shaw, who has just become such a powerful kind of teacher and catalyst for me when he said, my authenticity is in my incompleteness. And I just was like, I know that I so many of my listeners have the same about that. I've been thinking about yeah. it ever since. That was the summer of 2019, you know. So we're having an incomplete moment and we're going to choose to conclude in that incompleteness. That's so beautiful. And that's going to be okay. We can cultivate the capacity for that. And we can cultivate the capacity for, I think the reason that we avoid it so much and we're so uncomfortable with it is because I think incompleteness comes with a kind of grief, right? Yes. Like, but I wasn't done with it. Wait, but, but, uh, right. And I might never know. It might never feel complete. And what will I do? What will we do? Oh, and I am so vulnerable to that, which is why practicing like this is so good for me. It's so it strengthens me as a being because this incompleteness is just part of how it is. All right. So there ends the conversation. We're going to practice. Yes. Beautiful. I love you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I love you too, Simone. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back because I know I run at kind of an odd angle, although maybe less odd now. From the way not not like not odd at all. Changing. It wasn't odd then. It's even less odd now. Okay. Um, well, I am glad to be part of your stream. 
And just because um, it's been a while since you've been here, um, has there been any changes to how people can find you? Where do people go? I am still at KarenHawkwood.com. Yeah. KJ Sassy Pants on Facebook. (laughs) I talk a lot about my work on Facebook, but I also do have an email list. I think it's important to have many you know, ways to people get the to message out. Yeah. And um, yeah, my work is getting weirder and wilder. Love it. More mythic and more chicken feety. <laughs> but Perfect. those are the places to find out. What that's if you're about. one of the weirdos <laughs> who Come are into in. that, if Come that's your on. kink, it happens many to of your folks, Many of your weirdos have come and found me since our last conversation. And it's been I a beautiful thing. They've thanked me for it. I was like, All oh, weirdos are happy welcome. to be the bridge. Yep. Go follow KJ and let the weird conversations and all the chicken feet ensue. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Hey, if you want a shot of fresh inspiration and actionable tips to improve your marketing every single week in your inbox, you better get on my email list. Sign up to receive my free ebook called 20 Unsolicited Copy Tips. It's been known to get people to come out of the woodwork and ask to work with you. So get on that link in the show notes and I'll see you in your inbox next time.